When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This is the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Upland Institute, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we're talking to Nick Adair from the Gun Dog It Yourself podcast. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 163. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Birdshot podcast thanks for tuning in everybody we've got a great show coming up with nick adair from the gun dog it yourself podcast talking plenty of bird dogs traveling upland hunting mix in a little tracking versus true dog conversation just in case you're a listener of the gun dog it yourself podcast you might know what that's about stay tuned we'll fire up that conversation in just a minute I do want to thank all of my Patreon supporters. Couldn't do it without you at this point, and I appreciate your continued support. I have received the first round of Birdshot Podcast swag, which happens to include can coolers and stickers. The first recipients of said swag are going to be my Patreon supporters. I will be working on getting some Birdshot can coolers, and I know this is an audio format, so I'll just tell you because I'm pretty excited about these. They look like shotgun shells. Super cool. I'll probably put some pictures up on my Instagram story. I'm sure I will eventually make them available to anybody that wants to buy one. Just at the moment, I don't quite have the systems in place or the infrastructure set up on my website to do e-commerce. So Patreon supporters first. You're going to get can coolers and stickers. I'll reach out to you via Patreon. For anybody listening, if you want to get a can cooler and or a Birdshot podcast sticker right away, you can always sign up for Patreon for as little as 5 bucks a month. And if you do that, you will be entered in the patreon supporter monthly giveaway which 
This month happens to be an Onyx Elite subscription card. Now, I'm recording this on January 31st, last day in January, so you may or may not be listening in time to take advantage of this giveaway. But next month, February, everybody signed up as a Patreon supporter by the end of February will be eligible to win the complete series of courses from the good folks over at Upland Institute, Ron Bain, Justin McGrail, online bird dog training video series. Excellent stuff. They have offered one up to our Patreon supporters for the month of February. So consider that. I appreciate all of your contributions, support, feedback. Been getting a lot of new listeners lately, and I feel like I'm hearing from quite a few of them. So I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. That goes to everybody out there listening. If you're enjoying the show, if you would be so kind to leave a rating, Spotify just launched their rating system within the last month or so. If you're listening on Spotify, go to the Birdshot Podcast, scroll up. There's a little star rating system. Leave a rating there. If you would, iTunes, you can leave a rating and or a review. You can also subscribe and follow. That really helps the show. So if you're listening on Spotify or Apple or whatever podcast player, if there's a subscribe or follow option, consider tapping that button for me and the Birdshot Podcast. I really appreciate it. And I think that's all I've got for you today. Kind of a quiet time of year for me. Looking ahead to some spring gun fitting events for Upland Gun Company. Eventually getting the dogs back in the spring woods. Before that, we've got Pheasant Fest coming up. I am officially undecided whether or not I'm going to be at Pheasant Fest. Who's going? Reach out. Let me know if you're going to be at Pheasant Fest. I may or may not be there. Like I said, undecided at this point, but I always love going if I can. If you are close by, haven't been there, are considering going, I highly recommend the event. Everyone I've ever been to has been a blast. And if you like this podcast, I am quite certain you will enjoy spending some time at Pheasant Fest. Nebraska, Omaha this year. i got to check the dates, see if I can make it down there. If I do, I'm sure I'll have some of those Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers with me. So you have to stop on by whatever booth I find myself in. All right, that's all I got for you today. Let's transition into our conversation with Nick Adair, host of the Gundogget Yourself podcast. I say it a couple of times in the episode today, but I'll say it right here straight away. If you enjoy the Birdshot podcast, I am confident you will enjoy the Gundogget Yourself podcast. I've been a fan of Nick, his show, his co-hosts, all the people involved with Gundogget Yourself since the beginning of their show. I appreciate the way Nick approaches topics, concepts, ideas. I feel it's similar to the way that I do it personally, and perhaps that's why I enjoy his show so much. But beyond that, they've got a great mix over there of interesting subject matter, guests. The conversations are structured in a way that allows the listener to derive a whole bunch of great stuff from each and every episode. And if you've never listened to the Gundog It Yourself podcast, definitely encourage you to check that one out. I'm sure there's an episode or two over there you will enjoy. So Nick Adair joining us on today's show. I was a guest on the Gundog It Yourself podcast a couple years ago. Thought it would be fun to bring Nick on the show and get his thoughts and perspective on a handful of different things, including grouse hunting, grouse dogs, traveling, upland hunting, training, whole laundry list of topics that Nick enjoys talking about, as do I, and as I know the listeners of this show do as well. So with all that said, let's welcome into the conversation and on to the Birdshot Podcast, Nick Adair. All right, buddy. We're rolling Birdshot Podcast. How you doing tonight? Uh, living the dream as always, man. Yeah. 
I, I would say living the dream is fitting as uh, I saw a clip of you still hunting like within the last handful of days. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, you know, for what we lack in actual bird numbers, we make up for in longer seasons, right? Yeah, that's true. What, what time does the season start rolling down there? So start a little bit later than we do up here. Yeah, your your grouse typically down here in Tennessee, your grouse will start uh, mid October, and then your quail starts generally sometime in November, and then it go, both of them goes all the way through the end of February. And uh, woodcock, we have a split season, so your first one is going to be November into December, and then the uh, second part of the, of it is the month of January. So we still have. Uh, I think three or four more days left of woodcock season right yeah, now. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, you still got still got woodcock hunting open, and then you got another month of quail and grouse. Yep, yep. Yeah. So we're getting after them. You know, it's they're hard to scrape by, but they're you yeah. Know, you can get out there and get after them if you want to. I listened to uh, an episode of yours, the the return of old timer Bill. <laughs> you guys were <laughs> you and Harold and him were recapping a hunt. I thought it was I don't know for me like from from afar it was cool to hear you. You really broke down the hunt and talk a little bit about the terrain and the cover and stuff. I mean, it's all just visions in my mind what I hear from people like you and Stephen Faust, but. I got to get down yep. there and see it one of these days. Oh, you have to, man. It's it's a completely different world. You know, it's, it, it's, I, I don't call it the same type of hunting. The Great Lakes hunting or North Woods is completely different than down here. And then I had the fortune of going up to the Northeast this season and checking out Maine. And that was even different. Uh, so it's like each region has a, a little something, a little different type of flavor to throw into it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That That's one of the things I want to, We'll talk about that a little bit at some point tonight because you you have hunted in I would say three distinct regions being down yep. there Maine this year you guys talked about that on your podcast and then Great Lakes obviously I know you've made some trips up this way but uh, before we get into all that why don't we uh, have you introduce yourself a little bit I imagine many listeners will be somewhat familiar to you but I I know this from uh, talking to a friend recently you know not everybody listens to every podcast and now there's right. there's too damn many of them anyways but a buddy <laughs> yeah. of mine a buddy of mine has a Paint River Llewellyn and I mentioned to him about the two episodes you did with Kyle on the Tracking versus True Dog which we'll talk about that a little bit later too and yeah. he's like oh I never heard of GDIY so I sent a listener <laughs> your way Nick <laughs> uh, I definitely appreciate that but yeah I mean I, I don't know how many listeners were naturally going to have some crossover but for yeah. those that don't know me my name's nick adair and i do the gundog it yourself podcast and just pretty much talk dogs that's that, that's the name of the game for me is dogs you know i love hunting i love chasing birds but if it wasn't for the dogs i wouldn't do this and so uh that's my passion and that's what i talk about week in week out is something to do with these these crazy dogs yeah when did you uh when did you launch it so it's been Two and a half years, something like that. Okay. It, it was uh, 2019, I believe, end of 2019, somewhere in that ballpark. You've got more episodes out than me. <laughs> well, well, you know, it's it's one of those things I've had. A, we've discussed going down in a number of episodes before, but, you know, it's if I'm going to do it, it's like I just I, I need to stay in that frame of mind. And so we, we pump out, we try and do uh, one episode a week. And then we throw in a little bonus episode every other week. Uh, you know, every now and then we miss one, and, but yeah. for the most part, we kind of stick with that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we've cranked out a lot of episodes over the two years that we've been doing it, but it's it's been a lot of fun. And 
the people that I've talked to and met and, you know, selfishly, I've, I tell everybody I've probably gained more than anybody doing this podcast because I've gotten to talk to these great resources that otherwise I wouldn't have had the capability or, uh, or, or option to. Yeah, I would absolutely echo that from my perspective doing this show. I mean, as much as, uh, you know, I get good feedback from the listeners as I know you do, like, yeah, I've gained a ton over having these yeah. conversations with people and, you know, you get direct access and, you know, the podcast is, it's a two way street. Like I, I enjoy doing it. I love hearing from people that like listening to it and learn, but then it's motivation, you know, to, to have that next conversation or reach out to somebody that maybe you otherwise wouldn't. Right. A hundred percent. I mean, in, in today's day and world, you know, we have social media and everything, but it's, it's hard to get cross country to chase species that you've never chased yeah. before. But, and so it's being, being able to have that option to connect with somebody that that's willing to come on and share the information for like, you know, we recently did an episode on chucker hunting and then an episode on Western quail species and me being in Tennessee, I don't, I've never been out that way. And yeah. so, you know, I'm gain, I'm gaining the knowledge from them being out there with boots on the ground that otherwise I wouldn't have. And so whenever I do get to make that trip, I'm better prepared for it. So, you know, it, it's one of those things, again, selfishly, I'm the biggest beneficiary from doing the podcast. But like you said, it's just, it, it, it is a big commitment. You know, how many podcasts are out there that have started and stopped? It's it's kind yeah. of a testament to podcasts like yours and mine and Ronnie's and Tyler's to where, you know, it, it's standing the test of time almost. You know, a couple of years isn't like a decade or anything, but it is yeah. a major time suck to do this and just look at how many podcasts have started and stopped within just a few months. Yeah, it's a, I don't know, it's a unique medium. I was a, I was a fan before I became a host of one, as I'm sure you were. And it's, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I had no, no ambition to start a podcast a couple of years ago. Yeah. You, know, you mentioned that to me. <laughs> yeah. It's like I had a, my buddy Austin who started the podcast with me. It was his idea. He's the, he's the one that pushed me. And I'm like, <laughs> no, nah, I don't want to do that. And then, you know, we get going and then he got a promotion at work. And next thing you know, I'm riding solo uh, a couple of years later. And it's like, man, a couple of years ago, I didn't even want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> So was Austin, um, I'm trying to remember back, did he, is he the, he got a job and then he moved? Was, am I getting that right? He didn't even move. He just, he just got a big promotion at his, uh, work okay. that didn't uh, afford him the time. I mean, as you know, that this doing a podcast, it's, it's a major time suck. And, yeah. uh, you, you know, it's, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to turn down a promotion at work to keep working on this little side project called a podcast or, you, <laughs> you know, no, it's a, you got to do what you have to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to, we'll circle back to GDIY a little bit. I will say that folks that enjoy the bird shop podcast and like listening to this, if you've never listened to GDIY, definitely recommend it. I know that the one thing that attracted, well, not the one thing, but one of many things that attracted me to GDIY is I think Nick, that you have sort of the same, for better or for worse, you got that same analytical mindset that I have and like the way you break things down and kind of want to understand things. Uh, I know that really drives me and I think I, I hear that coming through on your podcast quite a bit. Yeah, it's all about, you know, we all have the bigger picture of what we want to do with these dogs and hunting and whatever drives you and your passion. But for me, I... I can take in the information a lot better in smaller chunks, right? So, yeah. you know, it goes back to what's the best way to eat an elephant. It's was one bite at a time. So let's, yeah. let's break it down into little bite sized chunks 
and make it relatable to the average everyday person because that's ultimately where all of it started was we got sick of podcasts where they would talk about some training, but it was it was always in terms of a pro trainer setup or, you know, resources that the average person didn't have available to them. And we're, we're asking, where's the podcast for the average person training their dogs in their backyard? Yeah. Again, like more and more people are getting their first bird dog and like there's some episodes and you appreciate the podcast format. Like you guys have episodes as far as like, this was a couple of years ago, but you kind of went down the list of like intro to gun, intro to bird. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got complete episodes on that. And Again, if you appreciate the format, I think it I think it provides a lot of extra context that you don't always get when you're maybe say reading an article on that. But it's a collection of resources that you need to lean on, including, you know, not only content but also like mentors and other people. Like it's just it's a it's a learning process. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, we we try and just cover all the bases and a wide array of them. You know, we we have everything from obviously the bird dogs that we mainly focus on, but we yeah. do a lot of hound stuff here and there and habitat stuff too it's uh we try and kind of cover all the bases for anybody that's interested in hunting dogs in general let's rewind the clock a little bit and go back to the days maybe long before nick adair was even considering (laughs) doing a podcast what where did bird dogs and hunting enter your life talk to me about that man I, i honestly i wish i could tell you where I was at to where, you know, I, I, I first saw a bird dog or something, but I, I honestly can't. I've always just had a fascination with hunting dogs. And, you know, I grew up mainly fishing. I didn't get into hunting until much later till I think I was 18, 19 years old. I had a buddy that introduced me to duck hunting. And uh, I found when I was going duck hunting with him, I cared a lot more about the dog work and what he was doing or not doing with his lab that was out there with us than I was about the actual duck hunt. And, you know, at the time I, I was very brand new to hunting, but one thing growing up that I did, I, was, I read where the red fern grows. That was my favorite yeah. book growing, growing up. And so I had this fixation about dogs. So I ended up getting a red bone coon hound and coon hunting, uh, for a few years, I did the best I could. But even back then, that was probably 06, 07, the resources that are available to us now wasn't even back yeah. available back then. And so, like, I was really very green. I mean, we, we got a couple coons here and there, but it, it was just enough to kind of dip my toes into the hunting dog world. And then years later, when I got settled down and, and started having some time and, and some funds some some money available yeah i've always been curious about bird dogs and then going back to the to the podcast topic again uh that's when i tuned in to to ron and the hunting dog podcast and i binge listened to that for a a week or two and then i came home and i told my wife or fiance at the time i'm like you know i'm gonna get a bird dog and to her credit she said go for it knock it out (laughs) (laughs) and then here we are years later i'm sure she regrets that 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 decision (laughs) and giving me permission to just go for it it's it's kind of funny thinking back to the days when Ronnie was the only game in town, the hunting dog. Yeah. Dog, I, I remember I was, I was working for the rough grouse society at the time. So I was doing a lot of driving and a lot of listening. Yep. I was like every day, every time I had to be in the truck for a few hours and there was a new 
hunting dog podcast episode. That was a damn good day. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, back then, you know, now you have freaking 50, 50 yeah. different podcasts to choose from for hunting dogs or, or whatever your, your fix is. Yeah. But back then it was, it was Ron. That, that was it. <laughs> That's all you had. So you didn't even have the luxury of, you know, switching around, look for different flavors. And then I think you came along and then Tyler came along and, and it's just like, all right. And now it's just, all right, well, take your pick. <laughs> yep yep what are you interested in on that particular day yep. um all right guts are a little waterfowl hunting and but it sounds like you know maybe not surprisingly even this early on into the conversation it was it was the dogs that really yes. pulled you in yep it was 100 percent dogs i mean i just i just remember we'd be in the blonde and, and you know ducks are working and everything and I, i'm just watching him and how he's handling his dog and how steady she was and then when he's handling retrieves i'm like all right this is awesome and then then you know just kind of as i'm gently like trying to figure out how to get into the bird dog world you know at, at first it's all at the time all i knew was coon hounds and labs i had no idea about short hairs and the versatile dog world and the pointing yeah. dogs and then listening to the podcast then that sends you down a rabbit hole and you start googling and youtubing and and next thing you know you know i'm going up to visit a breeder in west virginia and i bring home my first short hair what do you remember about sort of your mindset and maybe perspective of like, did you get that dog at like eight weeks old puppy? No. So I was looking for a puppy like everybody does when they yeah. first kind of start looking into, into this. And, uh, fortunately I, I literally, I just searched German short hair breeders on Google and, and I remember I went through the entire first page and I called every breeder. And of course there were some, <laughs> there were some nice people and, and stuff like that, but there just, there wasn't that feeling right like anybody that's listening to this that's found their breeder they know that feeling when they get on the phone with them yeah and and so i mean i remember i had to go to the second page on google and i find this little small kennel uh up in west virginia called uh jeremiah moore was the breeder moro high kennels and I just started talking to him and he was the only breeder that said, yeah, come on up. I'll show you exactly what I have. And I know you want a puppy and, but I have this great dog available that, uh, she started, she's almost a year old. And I think that she could probably in your position, teach you more than what you can teach a puppy. And it really just kind of resonated with me. And then going up there and seeing the level that she was at in the field, it was, it was almost perfect. Like it was, she was still early on to where I needed to train to help her take the next level that she could take. But I wasn't starting from square one, which as you know, starting off with your first dog, it's a very daunting perspective for a lot of people, right? It's just like, Oh, I want a dog. But then after that, what do you do with that dog? Yeah. And so it kind of helped me skip a couple steps and afforded me a little bit of time to, to adjust and figure out how I wanted to go about doing this whole gun dog thing. Yeah. Yeah. You alluded to, you know, I think the vast majority of people, myself included, when you are thinking about dog number one, you're walking into it like I'm getting a puppy, you know, you want yeah. it from right from from day one you know eight weeks whatever but like you want that puppy you want that puppy phase I, I feel like I've heard a few breeders maybe even Jerry Coulter who I got my two dogs from say that getting a started dog for your first dog is not necessarily a bad idea and, and you know no. obviously different levels of, of starting but yeah there's a lot of things that just when it comes to exposure and stuff that if you don't really have a feel for it I mean I don't I don't like I think one thing that you guys do a good job of and I think you've kind of learned is like they're Yes, you can quote unquote ruin a dog, but 
the dogs are pretty darn resilient and you know, you can, you can make mistakes. Like you don't have to be petrified that you're going to make a terrible mistake every day. So I can remember kind of feeling that way with Hartley, my first dog, but you know, having a started dog who's been through a little bit, maybe had a little bit more exposure, not necessarily a bad thing. Yep. So she, I mean, to your point, it's like, there's paralysis by analysis, right? Yes. If you go yeah. into a training scenario and you're not confident in what you're doing, then that dog's not going to be confident either. That dog right. is going to feed off of you. And of course, when you're first starting out, you don't know that. And it's just like so many people get caught in the trap of they're so afraid to make a mistake that they don't even try to take a step forward, right? Yeah. It's just like... You know, we, we've all seen the, the, the person with the dog who the dog figure, figures out how to do one thing successfully so that the handler just keeps doing the same thing over and over and over again because they don't want to go try something different. And and so the started dog, she came to me, Rachel is her name, she came to me and she just had very basic bird manners on her, right? Yeah. You know, she knew how to search a field. She knew how to point. She knew how to hold for, for my flush. And she had some retrieving work done with her. Just enough to where I could then take her and I could go hunting. You know, I'm not passing any crazy hunt test or yep. trial or anything, but I have my hunting dog right out of the gate. All I need to do is kind of create this bond and make sure that the obedience is there on recall and everything that we need to, to do this safely and, and enjoyably. And so it's just, it really set me up to where instead of me trying to figure out exactly what I'm doing with this dog the first hunting season, instead we got used to each other and we were hunting within a month or two of getting home together. Yeah, that yeah, that's like quite literally, you know, you had a dog that you could just take hunting. You know, people yep. like people like to say that, and I know I've said that too. But like those simple little things that you described that had been done with Rachel, like that's like a mountain of work for a first time bird dog owner. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first time if you start off with a pup and then it's like, okay, now we got we got, we got a house train, we got a kennel train, we got all this obedience. How in the world do I break the you know introduce the dog to birds and then introduce birds it to gun, gunfire? Yeah. <laughs> and then you know then then you get on Facebook and you start asking the questions and that's a cesspool on social oh, yeah. media on some of the <laughs> advice that you get. So you know it's. It's very difficult if you you don't know what you don't know. And, yeah. and you know, it's just like getting a started dog, if, if somebody's listening to this and they're, they just want their first dog, give it some serious thought. You know, don't get scared off by a price tag because when you, when you factor in the time and effort that it t- took a trainer or a breeder to train that dog for a year and to feed it and vet costs and everything, you're actually coming out ahead almost every single time yeah. on the value of that dog. And so I tell everybody, you know, if, if you're if you're that person to where you're so green, you have no idea what you're doing. Don't let the thought of a started dog scare you off just because right. you want a puppy, because that could be the best thing that ever happened to you. Yeah, it's maybe a good point. It, it came up with a friend of mine recently, and the same exact thing happened to me. You're coming into this, and I was going to get a puppy, and I got on the deposit list for a female. Well, as you all know, like. There's no guarantees, right? When the litter drops, like you don't know how many puppies are going to be, how many male, female. So I got a call at one point and it was, Hey Nick, we've got a dog for you, but it's not a female. There was only one in the litter and she went to somebody else. I I know who uh, owns her still today, but I had a chance to get my dog Hartley or I could wait for another litter. And you know, I had to have that conversation and I didn't really know, like I wasn't really strong on a female for one reason or another. And I think that kind of allowed Jerry to sort of talk me through that, but 
point I'm getting at there is like just sort of be prepared, be a little flexible, you know, don't, yep. don't be so inflexible and trust your breeder. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, be able to, you know, be willing to bend a little bit. You know, I went yeah. into this when I decided, okay, I want your German short hair. I went into it wanting a male liver roan colored about, <laughs> oh, yeah. about 50 plus pounds. Like I wanted, I wanted a good sized dog. Cause you know, it's like, all right, I'll, I'll do the occasional duck hunting. Let's break eyes. So you take that, and I ended up getting a started primarily white German short hair that's 40 pounds. So I, I, almost every single criteria that I was looking for in the short hair when I first started, I ended up with the exact opposite. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Like I, I contribute that decision and listening to the breeder that I trust, I contribute that to literally knocking off probably two plus years of a learning curve for me. Yeah. You, me and everybody else I could describe, I was looking for a, you know, well not, not, I wasn't looking for, I was going to get a female English setter with a, a tricolor half mask and an eye patch. You know, I had the whole, the whole painting like painted in my head and, uh, I got, I got pretty close to that. It was a male and he had a full mask tricolor, but (laughs) (laughs) that's funny. Oh yeah. All right. Let's, let's go to, so I'm curious where, where you were at bird hunting wise when you got Rachel, you know, like your first season, when you went out to hunt, like, were you, did you know what you were doing on the upland side of things? No, what did you, I, did what was your... <laughs> I did not have a freaking clue. So <laughs> I did not have any gear. I, I, I had no idea what I was hunting to be perfectly honest. All I had was this cra- crazy podcast that Ron was doing. Right. So you, the, you the... literally are the guy, you got a dog and got pulled into hunting. Up I did. I, I did. Yeah. I mean, it, it was one of those, it's like, I just knew that I wanted to do it. I knew that a dog pointing was the coolest thing on earth. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, all it took, you know, my wife went up to, up to whisper. West Virginia with me and she was sold the second that she saw four dogs in the field back and honor each uh, other. That's cool. and, and like she immediately just said, yes, we're doing this. That's the coolest thing. <laughs> and so I, I had to learn it. And like I said, I, I brought her home and within a month or two, I was out grouse hunting and yep. you know, in Tennessee it's unicorn hunting. So, you know, yeah. add that to the next level. And I had no idea about gear. You know, I'm just sitting here and like, all right, you know, let, let's go walk the woods. I'm walking the oldest, ugliest forest that you can for, for grouse hunting, <laughs> completely wide open. I'm in the worst boots that you can, and I'm I'm kicking 15 miles, and, you know, by the time I got done, my feet are all blistered up because I'm just in regular freaking boots. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I, it, it's, it's funny. I, I look back at some of the pictures from when I first started and the gear that I did not have. And I just repurposed army gear and, and deer hunting gear. You know, I'm in camo hunting, (laughs) hunting grouse and a horrible $30 orange vest from Walmart and a Remington 870 pump shotgun that I use for duck hunting. It it was, I I looked like a greenhorn, which is what I was. And, (laughs) but you know what? I I wouldn't trade anything in the world for it because get, that's that's where I learned. Like I was just a sponge. I went out. I asked as many people I knew. You know, I, I found the mentors and old timer Bill, like you were talking about earlier. Yep. Uh, and I figured it out. And over time I started upgrading my gear and getting it better and better and better. And every trip, every outing, I learned something new and I started piecing the puzzle together. And I'm not going to sit here and claim that I'm some amazing hunter. Cause I'm not, I, you know, I, everywhere I go, 
it's it's a whole new learning curve because I'm too stubborn to keep going back to the same spot and learning it. <laughs> I, I, I have too much wanderlust. I have to go into new areas, which is a whole new learning curve. And then I have to change it up and chase different species. So like the learning curve has been extended through my own choices. If I wanted to focus in on let's just hunt grouse in Wisconsin every year, I'd probably be a lot better than what I am now. But you know what? I enjoy getting out there and chasing different things. You know, to me, what's the point of having a versatile dog if you only chase one thing over and over and over again? Yeah, you are. You are indeed uh, diversifying the portfolio. But that'll <laughs> that'll pay off because yeah, you know, you might be you, you might be at the early stages of learning various species and various habitats. But sooner or later, you reach a point. And I, you know, I wouldn't say like, I'm really there. Like I, I would be guilty of, you know, sticking to my comfort food. And obviously I've got a little different situation going on in my backyard as far as like what I have access to, but you know, yeah, those things start to overlap. And then I think, you know, you become a more well-rounded bird hunter and dog handler for sure. And absolutely. It's one of those things. I'm a novice in many things and an expert in none. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Was old timer Bill, like, was he your first mentor? I was, I was curious, like who, who did you lean into? Like, did you have anybody that was like, take you out grouse hunting or? Yeah. So Bill, he, he is really the first, first one that kind of helped me get started. I, I went out a couple times myself and having no clue what I was doing. All I did was make sure that I was legal and safe. Right. It's just like, other than that, it's like, that's public ground. I'm going to go walk that. I don't know if there's even a grouse out there. Uh, but I, I went. And so then the hunting season ended and spring and summer happened. And I'm just, I'm just looking to, I'm grasping at anything, right? I'm looking for anything to start up and get going and meet people and learn. And so, you know, I'm, I'm checking out my local NAVDA chapter and I'm also trying to start like an RGS chapter in middle Tennessee. And that's where I met Bill. And okay. he, he came to the event that I was trying to start the RGS chapter and the chapter never got all up off the ground. It was, it was a lot of, a lot of miscommunication. It was kind of a cluster to be perfectly honest, trying to start the chapter, but the relationship with Bill stuck and he, and he's, he's that old timer that, yeah, you know, I've been doing this for 40, 50 years. Come out and join me this fall. Well, you know, you hear that a lot from people. But then you usually don't get the phone call that says, yeah, sure. I told you to come out. Come on out. Well, he followed it up and he backed it up. And I took him up on the offer. And that was, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago now. And yeah. we try and link up for at least one good walk every year. And he's the one that really kind of set me on my way. And, and he'll, he'll tell you now to where I'm helping him on a lot of other things now, too, is, you know, in terms of maps and just scouting and just getting out and and learning new techniques. And the people that I get to talk to on the podcast, he's in it just as much as me. And so it's just like he he really gave me the foundation to start grouse hunting and start figuring it out. And then now it's we're both, we talk almost on a daily basis and try to help each other find these unicorns down here in Tennessee. Yeah. I thought it was funny when you and you and Harold were joking about like what, what makes somebody qualify as an old timer. 
what what would you say qualifies? I honestly, I don't, I don't know, but I've got a buddy up here who uh, you, you, you might as well call him old timer Scott. He's, <laughs> I mean, like he is one of you know one of a select few people that have have been like a really really valuable mentor to me, and you know he's been he's been hunting grouse around here with English setters for 30, 40 years. I mean, so it's like yeah. similar situation. You lean into that and, and same thing. Like when I met him, you know, I, I would have been grouse hunting for a long time, but I knew nothing about dogs and, and hunting them with dogs. And so, and he recognized that obviously, you know, we laugh about yeah. it today, but it's just, and now like I've come a long way, you know, in, in large part, thanks to a lot of what, what he's kind of shown me about, chasing birds with dogs and stuff and now we go out and hunt and we're kind of feeding off each other it's yeah it's it's really cool oh it, it it's fantastic when you find that mentor that that really kind of fits it it is a huge difference maker you know i i'll never forget you know he's he's helping me figure out the habitat walk this you know don't don't bother going to look in at 20 year old forests as if somebody needed to tell me that for some right. reason i don't know why <laughs> but you know, even the smaller stuff, like, you know, when, when we're talking maps and locations, like, what am I looking at at a map? I remember he handed me a huge stack of these National Geographic CD-ROMs uh, for his map database. And I'm just sitting here, I'm like, I don't even think I have a laptop or a computer that has a CD <laughs> Disk <compartment."> drive. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then, you know, so I got him on Onyx. And then, you know, he, he was the quintessential bell guy on his dogs. And so we got him on the Garmin Alpha tracking system. Now he's got the Garmin watch and it's, yeah. a, it's just hilarious just to watch. And, and he's still, he's still stuck on that paper mat, man. And that, that's what I talk <laughs> about old timer. Like if, if you have Onyx right here, you, you have scout and hunt maps right here, which I've got him on as well. And you're still, you're still going back to the paper mat. You know, it's like, you can't beat that. And, and then just, just his tradition, like it's it's stuff like that. The guys that have been hunting for fifty or sixty years, that the traditions, you know, they're the ones keeping it alive. I mean, something as silly as today, you have people that give their dogs post hunt, you know, animate or uh, the the gun dog nutrition stuff. Yeah. You know, he goes with oatmeal cream pies. You know, it, it's still a glyco- glycogen recharge, right? Like it, it's still glucose, it's still sugar, and but you know, it's it's a running joke, and everybody in Tennessee that's an upland hunter knows Bill always has a giant box of oatmeal cream pies, and if the dogs do well, they get an OCP, and if they don't, they don't get an OCP. <laughs> it's this like silly stuff like that that I just eat up, and and the tradition of what what he's done over fifty years, it just it's got to live on. Not to mention those oatmeal cream pies are dual purpose. <laughs> yeah, dude, and, uh, he, he gets on to me every time I say, like, hey, we flush a bird. And, you know, he's like, give the dogs an OCP. I'm like, ah, I kind of ate them all. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's funny. I, I could I could actually uh, share a story. I, I think it was the first time I went hunting with Scott. We just met up and, like, I kind of, like, took him to one of my spots and, you know, he's like, gave me the whole he's like i won't you know i've been hunting for 30 years i don't need your spots and i'm like all right you know let's go here and the way i used to this is before onyx you know i never had a plat book like we can i would just hunt anywhere i didn't see a no trespassing sign and then like looking Mm -hmm. back which which we can technically do like in northern minnesota if land is as far as i know last time i looked up the law it's still this way if it's not posted you could hunt it right private land where i'm hunting I, i suspect that growing up i was hunting like 99% public land. I don't, I don't think I was on private land very much, but 
to that point, like we hunted one spot, which was public. I still know where I still hunt there every once in a while. And we go to this other spot and we're kind of looking at it and I'm like, well, I think we can hunt here. Like, you know, that's an old no trespassing sign. That's not mm-hmm. legitimate. And Scott's like, he's like, well, let me show you something. And he goes in his truck and pulls out a plat book. And I was like, I've never even seen a damn plat book before. Yeah. But now I got Scott. He's used, uses Onyx maps. Now I got him his first Garmin GPS caller <laughs> this year because he, he's got a young dog that likes to run a little bit. So yeah, it's a, uh, uh, it's just cool relationships you can develop, you know, and then oh, obviously yeah. the, the bond between the dogs and stuff like it spans time. It's, it's cool. Yeah, no, it, it's fantastic. It sounds like you have the same exact kind of relationship with Scott that I do with Bill down here. Yeah, I don't have to write that down. Oatmeal cream pies. I used to love those as a kid, but I don't eat too many of them anymore. No, it's not. It's not the healthiest thing for you, but you, you really can't go wrong with it. <laughs> is your is your wife the type of person that would start reading the uh, ingredient list and get on your case about that? Because mine is. No, so I actually have to kind of take that role. And oh, really? Over my wife. Yeah, my wife is a junk food fanatic. You know, it, it, she she could live off of Easy Neck and, and granola bars, and, and I'm just sitting. <laughs> Like, where's the real food? (laughs) Oh, that's too funny. All right, man. I want to segue a little bit and talk about, I want to talk about your main hunting trip. Now I listened to your episode about this. I know it wasn't like a hardcore hunting trip. You know, you had Mm -hmm. the family along and stuff, but there were some things that came up. I mean, number one, I'm just kind of curious as to, as a guy that sort of hunted, you know, near me in the area that I kind of know. And then hunting over there like compare and contrast it for me a little bit so the first thing that probably comes to mind is how the birds just act around you and your dogs. that's what that's what i wanted you to get to because i yeah, thought that was pretty it, interesting it, it was shocking to be perfectly honest uh you know wisconsin uh for better or worse the past few years it's been getting hit pretty hard right yeah. you know if, if a city's gonna post a put up a big statue that says the the rough grouse capital of the world you're, you're gonna attract a lot of hunters right 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 and so those birds have seen dogs they've seen hunters they're educated they're they're smart and so I had the pleasure to hunt both Wisconsin and Maine in a very short time, like in a matter of a two, three week span. And I went up to Wisconsin and it was very difficult. The bird numbers were great, but the pressure was unreal. And in the years that I've been going to Wisconsin this year, seems like they were just everywhere. Every morning I was passing uh, trucks with, you know, eight hole dog boxes in the back of the truck, pulling another eight to 10 dog hole box trailer behind it. And it was one of those, the birds were there. You could see the birds, but you just couldn't get a play on them. You know, they're flushing anytime you get out there. And then what time of year were you in Wisconsin? Uh, that was early October. Early uh, mid October, right. yeah, and yeah, then yeah. then the last week of October we go to Maine. Okay, and you know up there the the, the Patridge they uh, <laughs> the you talk to the locals up there. I don't think they they're even aware that the grouse live further than ten yards off the road, right? <laughs> and and that's how they primarily hunt them. And we got off the trail and we had, we had some guys that we, we went with, we had some locals there that, you know, we were eating dinner with and just kind of knew through, through friends and stuff yeah. that they are calling us crazy because we're getting off the road to go chase these birds. Hmm. And we got into some birds that I swear they, they just didn't know what a dog was. They didn't know what a human was. You know, I, the first point that, that we really got into the first walk, Rachel sticks the point. And the grouse puffs up 
and kind of starts doing the little strut at her. Strutting. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and I'm just sitting here. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do. And she's looking at me like I can literally just grab this thing right now. But of course, <laughs> you know, she's been trained not to for eight years. And I'm just sitting here. I'm trying to get it to flush, and it's just bouncing back. I mean, it, it felt like it felt like a weird uh, pin raised hunt, right? Yeah, and yeah. so it, it finally gets up, and, and I shot it. And then throughout the rest of the week, you know, it wasn't as that, that extreme, you know, I guess I found the the really brightest grouse in, in that brood. Uh, I don't know, but <laughs> the rest of the week, it, you know, they were acting more like grouse, but they were playing for the dogs more. So yeah. they were holding tighter. You got to see the good flushes. You, you know, you really got to appreciate what it was. And it was just a completely different experience than what I was hunting in Wisconsin just two weeks prior. It's yeah. like, it's the same bird, but because you're in different regions, it was, wasn't the same bird. That's uh, super interesting. I, I recalled you talking about that and I just, I don't know. I mean, there's it's one of those things that there's so many variables and obviously yeah. you can, you know, you, you're looking at, you're making observations, which I think, you know, are probably legitimate, but at the end of the day, who knows, you know, as far as like weather conditions, all sorts of stuff yep. going on. It's such a small sample size. I mean, yeah. you, you have no idea. It was kind of unseasonably warm up in yeah. Maine where I was at. I mean, it was still warm in Wisconsin. So, I mean, the, the, the food availability was completely different. Uh, I mean, it, it, it just, Small sample size, but just anecdotally, you know, that's kind of what we were dealing with. You know, we go from Wisconsin, really tough hunting just to get a play on some birds. And then Maine, it's just like, you if your dog has a nose, you're going to go get into some birds. Yeah. So on that note of, you know, you said the bird numbers in, in Wisconsin were good. So obviously mm-hmm. you had some contacts. Yeah. I mean, what was what was happening more often than not? I mean, birds just getting up before you could really get into position? Yeah, so the uh, position was a big issue throughout the entire week. Uh, the, the dogs would point and, you you know, you come up. You don't know which way they're oriented, so you don't know yeah. how to J-hook or flush back towards the dog. And, and you know, I, I'm a believer in kind of circling way behind, you know, further out than what you initially think and then yep. and flushing back to the dog. Uh, I just – the whole week you didn't even get an opportunity to do that. It was like the dog would point, you would maybe take a few steps and you would hear that flush out the other side. Yeah. And, and there was a lot of birds that were roosted. Uh, you know, Lucy, especially my, my Munstie, she, uh, she pointed a lot of roosted birds that trip. And so, really? yeah, she pointed a lot of roosted birds, but then you know how roosted birds are. They're never going to flush out on the side of the tree. That oh you're yeah. In, right? yeah it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. It's like good luck getting in position to take advantage of that. And yeah. so, I mean, we had plenty of contacts. The dogs had some really good learning, uh, learning curves and learning opportunities, but it's just, it's just not what you typically drive, uh, you know, 12 plus hours to go do right. You know, we, yeah. we got into them every day. It just, it never, never came together. Yeah. It can feel, I mean, you know, obviously we'd love to do it, but yeah, there's things that can frustrate you. And it's like, if you could take a step back and think of like, you literally drove X amount of hours <laughs> to put yourself in this spot. It's like, you're this close to yep. the dog, the bird and everything. But it's like, there's a lot that has to happen 
the bird's got to cooperate for you to get in there tight and get yeah, close need, and get a shot. You need a little bit of luck. You know, yeah. you can do everything everything right. Your dogs can do everything right, but you still need that little bit of luck, just that little window of a shot opportunity. And, uh, you know, it's it's just one of those. I, I never really got many of those. Uh, you know, I took a good – threw a good – uh, a few good what fours, a couple good pokes at them, <laughs> yeah. and uh, it just it just didn't pan out. And uh, but then you get you fast forward a couple weeks up in Maine, and it and it's just it's crazy with a whole trip. We're sitting there talking, me and Harold, about you know two weeks ago we we're hunting the same bird in, in the Great Lakes, and it was completely different. And so it could have been yeah. weather change, it could have been pressure related, it could have been food related. Who knows? But uh, all I know is I definitely needed Maine to kind of wipe off the Wisconsin trip this year. (laughs) Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. The guy, who was the guy that you hunted, the taxidermist was named Tim in Wisconsin? Tim, yeah, Tim Perkins. Okay. So Tim, so there's a, another good episode on GDIY. Check it out. But you talked about him approaching dogs on point, making a big circle slash yep. J-hook, which is what I try to do. And I've been instructed or mentored from people, you know, like circle wider and farther than you think. Right. And Mm -hmm. that dog is like a dang tractor beam, you know, like as soon as you see that dog, as, as much as I want (laughs) to circle out and circle wide, like I'm getting sucked into the dog. So sometimes I don't always put myself in the best position, but you said at one point, I believe you said 75 yards that Tim was going like up ahead of his dog. So I was like, Talk to me a little bit about that. I mean, was he really making those big circles? Yes, he really was. And the, and the cool thing about Tim, and this is another, he's kind of like another uh, Bill to mm-hmm. us. He just reached out as a listener. He heard that we we're going to go go to Wisconsin, and he just reached out and he was like, "Hey, let's go hunt." And you know, you get that, and sure, yeah. but you know, it. it it just does, doesn't ever really work out, right? You know, yeah. I mean, me and you have tried to link up in, in years previous, and it just doesn't work out. Well, it, it worked out with him. Not only – so Harold was up there a few days before me. Tim yep. went and, and linked up with him and worked with him and really kind of gave Harold a, a good start because Harold's never hunted grouse before. So uh, then he links up with me towards the end of the week after I get there, and I'm just sitting there. He's hunting with English pointers, and – I love hunting with these type of guys because you learn so much. If you can just shut, shut your trap and watch what they do, you know, don't even ask the questions. I mean, if you have a good question, ask it, but just, just pay attention, watch them in action on how they hunt. And I'm doing that the entire morning that I'm watching his pointers. 
And he had, I, I can't remember his dog's name, but he had this, the veteran pointer, like I, out of yeah, the truck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he gets out there and it's, I'm just, I'm just amazed at how like Tim just lets him go. You know, he's still getting ready to go at the car and he's just like, yeah, go hunt. And next thing you know, you, you hear the beeper collar going off <laughs> and, and I'm like that fast. Really? Like this is a spot that I've worked just a, a couple days ago. And, uh, <laughs> And so I'm I'm doing the typical like dog on point. I got to get there fast. You know, I was I was taught that you don't you, you don't wait around for the bird. Like you don't assume that the bird's just going to wait for the dog to hold it. You yeah. know, you you go up into the woods like that bird owes you money and you're you're trying to get it up as fast as you can. Tim tells me like when we're going, he's like, "No, slow down." Like that's why you have a pointing dog. The dog <laughs> the dog holds for the for the bird. And I'm just sitting there like, "All right." All right. You know, I'm I'm along for the ride now, and I see him. He sees the dog. You know, we have the beeper going, and, and yep. he, he sees where the dog's at, and he just keeps walking. And I and I start two or three times trying to cut back. He's like, "No, nope, not yet. No, nope, not yet." And we get about seventy seventy five yards, and next yep. thing you know, the bird gets off to up to our right, and man, that there there was one branch in the way that Tim just w- would have smoked that bird. Like, yeah. I'm just, his reaction time, I'm like, you don't get that reaction time from anybody that hadn't been hunting grouse for 40, 50 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so from then on, it was just like, I noticed he was never in a rush. He was going at his own pace. He trusted his dog, which is a huge factor, as you know. Yeah. And it was just, it was just really interesting to watch how he handled that dog and it's just you know they really worked well together as a team and i'm just sitting there i'm like all right there's he's got lessons that you know i hope to learn one day just because he's been hunting these birds for so long and just how he was flushing those birds completely changed my outlook and i'm i kind i think i know where you're going with this leading up to the kyle episodes on the podcast (laughs) he kind of he kind of opened up the uh the question in my head on how do you flush these birds and yep. how do you want the dogs to react when they first catch scent on these birds? Yeah. T had a lot to share there and I, I thought it was interesting. I, I know that I do believe that, you know, if you've got a dog on point as much as you can, that isn't a tracking dog, which we won't, we won't break that. <laughs> we won't break that down entirely, but that's like a different yeah. animal itself. But, yep. but if you got a dog on point and you're what I'm hoping to find when my dogs are on point, I'm going to walk in and that grouse is, you know, nearby. Now that mm-hmm. does not happen all the time. That's, that's for sure. We're talking rough grouse hunting here, but yep. I think circling and it's, it's very simple. Like you're trying to apply multiple points of pressure on the bird, you know, yep. dog being one point, And then if you can circle, wide enough so that you don't flush the bird while you're circling and then you come in from the other side the dream scenario i've talked about on the show before you got the bird in between you and the dog now you've taken away x amount of degrees of escape path or maybe you know alter that grouse's plans for the day and it's it improves your shooting opportunities i've seen it happen i've been doing it for for years now like it it works but i was getting at like right now for the last couple seasons i've not been running a beeper on my dog do you run a beeper on yours in the grouse woods? I don't. And and this is one one thing that, you know, me and Bill and Tim even uh, we've yep. talked about. I When I go out in the woods, I like quiet. You know, yeah. I, I'm a sucker for tradition. So if I was to run something other than just a tracking collar, I'd probably run a bell just for the tradition of it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, to me, beeper collars, 
I've gone out with other people, and I, I don't fault them at all for, for running beepers. Like, run your game. Whatever makes you confident and, and comfortable hunting, do it by all means. Don't worry about me or someone uh, uh, someone else's opinion. If your dog's on the ground, you run what you need to. But me personally, when it comes to beepers, I don't go into the woods to listen to a forklift backing up. Like yeah. I just, it's, it just takes me out of the, out of the game almost. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, I can stomach it a lot better if it's on, on uh, point only mode, but yeah. when it's, yeah. when it's a, just, you're walking around and all you hear is beep, beep, beep. I'm like, you know what? I'm tracking collar, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't prefer that either. And, and yeah, the, the use case for me where I'm hung up on it, why I'm like, I have this mental challenge. Like, yeah, I just assume not run it. Like I don't necessarily want to, but mm-hmm. when my dog is on point and time is of the essence, like the interesting comments about, you know, going fast or slow. Yep. I've seen people, I've seen people do that both ways. I would, you know, personally, I make my way to the dog as quickly and as efficiently as I can, but I'm not running or anything yeah. like that. You know, I'm not sprinting. I'm just like, I'm quickly moving there. But anyways, when, when you get close, I mean, when GPS tells me I'm within 30 yards and I can't see the dog at that point, I feel like my decision-making is being affected by not having a beeper going and knowing exactly where the dog is like that real-time information i think that's helping a guy like tim know like boom laser beam my dog's right there now he knows where he can make that 75 yard circle where as i was kind of telling i mean sometimes like i can't see my dog i'm 30 yards away and then all of a sudden boom here i am on top of the dog 15 20 yards and now i've heard people will back out circle around like yeah. With me, I can't do that yet. Like if I'm in there, like I just go in and I mean, I don't know, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't, but that's the one thing about a beeper is like yeah. if I had it, it would be point only or just being able to locate, just hit the hit the button. I don't know. I I don't and have that, the perfect answer And for that's that. what that's what Tim used that I really like. So he had his on locate. So you know, he had a bell and a beeper. So you, you yep. heard the bell, then the bell goes quiet and then he would hit the locator. And then, you know, I think he even had it on, on the quail call, uh, just for the heck of it. Yeah. So like he knew exactly where he was. And to your point, you know, even the people like, like me, you know, I have a primarily white short hair. You think that when you get within 30 yards of that dog, you're going to be able to see it and you can see the dog, better than, you know, maybe some of these roan or brown or black dogs, right? But 30 yards, even if your dog is white, sometimes you can't see them until you're within five yards. And so you're yep. right. It does it does not only waste time for you getting set up, but then, like you said, it kind of costs you the initial approach opportunity to where you could have already stayed 25 yards to the left and circle back around yep. and pin that bird. And one thing I, I think a lot of people don't give grouse enough credit for is how much they run. You know, you always hear about pheasant oh, yeah. running, but you, you know, you hear grouse run, but I don't think the average person really kind of talks to how far they will run. If you, if you really take your time, there's a reason why Tim goes out 75 yards to circle back around. Those birds yeah. will run before they fly. And so if you're not ready for that, 
you know, how many times have you undercut a flush thinking that you went far enough and then when you're cutting back in, that bird gets up to your right or left and you weren't ready for it? Way too many times. <laughs> do, do you remember I sent you that video of Rose? I, like that exact same thing happened. She was on point and no beeper. So I'm looking at my watch. You know, you can't see all this in the video, mm-hmm. but I don't know where she is. And then all of a sudden I end up right on top of her. And I had, I didn't know this at the time, but the video kind of shows it play out. I cut in too early. The grouse was outside of the little circle that Mm -hmm. I made, which was like a five yard circle. I mean, I came in on Rose really close. Well, Rose, she did some hot tracking, little, uh, Little, yep. little term there from the, from the Kyle Warren episodes. She did some hot tracking. She relocated the bird, gave me another chance. I ended up putting that in the bag, which, you know, that's just your, my dog bailing me out in that case. But <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, you know, the whole X's and O's thing. I I like breaking it down and talking about it. It's just, uh, you know, you're trying to you're trying to do things better. Yes. Like, uh, we're, we're if you're improvement not if, oriented, you know, we're all out there to have fun. We're all out there to have a yeah. good time and relax. It's a, it's a, it's an escape for, I would say most of us. Right. You know, you get, you do get some people that go out there. They're just bloodthirsty. Right. It's like, I just, I got to kill yeah. some grouse. But if, if, if I'm not out there, if I'm not learning something, if I'm not paying attention, like I, to me, you know, yeah. I can shoot two or three birds. If I didn't learn anything as cliche or, or corny as that sounds, I feel like, like there was an element missing from the hunt. And so every step of the way, like you said, we're analytical type of guys. I'm critiquing every single thing I did from the point of how I got the dogs out of the truck and our little routine to let them know this isn't a fun run. This is a hunt, you know, go find them (laughs) all the way through how I flush. And then obviously shooting it and retrieving it every step of the way there it's I'm critiquing that and probably overthinking that to where some people out there, they just, they just want to go hunt. Right. And I I wish I was built that way, but I'm not. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Me either. (laughs) Maybe that, maybe that's why we both host podcasts. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We'll dive into this. I'll actually, let me just, I'm going to get this main question out of the way. Very simple question, but I was kind of curious. Like when I hear people talk about Maine, I feel like, I hear timber industry, private land being mentioned a lot. And we've got some of that around here, but it seems to be maybe more prevalent out there. I, I yes. don't know that for a fact. When you were finding places to hunt, you know, what kind of land, what kind of property ownership were you hunting? It, How did you find it? So it was private, but Maine is one of those states you were talking about earlier to where if it's not posted, you can go hunt it. Right. You, okay. you, you, it's still encouraged to ask permission. And so if you can ask permission, ask permission. But so we went into a certain area and we weren't really that close to public land. So I was getting a little concerned when we got up there. I'm like, all right, you know, to what you said earlier, it was kind of a family and friend trip as well. And we were going to be doing some hunting every day as well. So I'm looking at this. I'm like, I don't know how comfortable I am. If you're not used to hunting that way on private land when it's not posted, you know, you can kind of be a little nervous on going out there for the first time, right? Yeah, you've never seen these properties. You don't know if there's a cabin here. Exactly. Yeah, you don't know what you're walking into. And, you know, I'm, I'm down here in Tennessee. I'm in the southeast. It's a completely different landscape yeah. than up in Maine. And and so I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, all right. You know, I, I busted out the scout and hunt maps from Anjandernaw. And I can honestly say that Onyx did not serve me well at all in, in, in Maine. Just because, you know, the primary selling point on that is private versus public. 
And Mm -hmm. I was able to pull up scout and hunt. And I mean, literally it was just like, okay, there's two out of the three things I'm looking for. Three out of the four things I'm looking for. And I drop a pin and we go to it and we're getting birds up. And there was a learning curve for some people in, in the group that didn't have scout and hunt. And they were just kind of, you know, doing it old school, just like going out and like, Hey, I can hunt this. This looks good. Let's go try it. And they got into some birds by the end of the week. But me and Harold, we were looking at the maps and, and looking at all the type of cover and what was in the area, which is what the main, that's the main selling point for man's app. Right. And, and we went out and we were in birds from the very first walk all the way through the week. And it was, it it happened exactly like you hope it does and how it's supposed to, to where you spend the time scouting maps and looking at this, then you go put boots on the ground and it just, it just clicked. It just worked every single walk. We were getting into some birds and it was just, it was just an overall just fun trip. Yeah. I think, I think if I recall some of my conversations with Ann, whether they were on the podcast or not, Maine has been kind of a, you know, a lot of people have wanted maps for that state, but I think it's always kind of a pain for yes. her and maybe be, maybe because there's so much private land. Yep. But I think that given that you had success with her maps out there, obviously she's, she's figured some things out. What, what were some of the things you were looking for? So we, we found all our birds. We've realized uh, we just kind of went off on, on a hunch. I live by, by the three uh, must haves when, when you're looking for grouse, right? Like food, cover, water. And my rule of thumb is if there's not two out of the three, move on to the next spot. You know, that doesn't mean like get in your truck and go down the road, but just keep looking. If there's not two out of those three factors, I'm not interested in sticking around. I would agree with that. Yeah. And so I'm looking at the map and I'm like, all right, there's a, there's a convergence of diversity here. And it it was, it was younger, uh, hardwood conifer mix. And so I just found that type of cover, which she notates on her app and I'm looking for that cover primarily. Then I start looking for water that's nearby. And then I start trying to match that up with elevation changes and stuff like that. And so then you go in there and then you start looking for food. You know, what, what's, what's out there, what salad is out there, what seed, what's, what berries. I mean, there are still raspberries out there on some of the plants. Uh, And so we start piecing that together and every single area that Harold and I got with two out of those three things we found and got shots on birds. Yeah. Very cool. That's the way you want it to happen, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was just, it was just a great overall trip and I, you know, it, I don't want everybody going and blowing up Maine like they have Wisconsin, right. but you know, it's just, it's just a testament. Get out and check out new areas. Don't be afraid to check yeah. out new areas. We have the tools and the map surveys, like use them, use them to your advantage. Don't be afraid to go check out new ground. Yeah. Yeah. And like we mentioned it earlier, but yeah, you'll be a, you'll be a more well-rounded grouse hunter for, for that. Yeah. You know, seeing new turf. Yeah. All right. Circling back to kind of dogs and, and it like this, this conversation and the hunt you had with Tim kind of inspired this a little bit. We're not going to go into all this. There's, there's some really good episodes on the GDIY podcast. Look for tracking versus true dogs, part one and two. <laughs> and you know, if they wanted to start with the episode on with Tim Perkins, that'd be a good one too. Yeah. If you if you get into this, but anyways, Kyle, Kyle Warren is the uh, breeder of paint river Llewellyn's mm-hmm. and I've interviewed him on this show a while back and I've gotten to hunt over some of Kyle's dogs. I've never hunted with Kyle, mm-hmm. but I've always been, I've been fascinated. I mean, there's only so many people in this world that spend, 
ridiculous amount of time running dogs on grouse in the grouse woods. Kyle's up there with you know people as far as like the amount of hours he puts in. So when he's saying something, I'm listening because I'm always curious like what his what he sees in his perspective. And he obviously knows his dogs extremely well. I mean, he, he lives with them all the time and he's, he's super passionate about his dogs, but there's this conversation about a tracking dog and a true dog. And it's, it's interesting to me looking at my dogs in through that lens and the way Kyle kind of explains it, he's kind of like, you know, you got a true dog and a tracking dog. Like it's almost like black and white. Yeah. Right. But I don't know that he would say it's either, or he might, I'm, I have to ask him about that, but it's, I think there's there's maybe some some overlapping or blending. I don't I don't really know, I guess, but I just I see some of the things that my younger dog Rose does and she's got some tracking tendencies and yeah. one of the things that Kyle mentioned in the show was this, you know, a true dog could do hot tracking, which is what he called, you know, kind of like relocating, yeah. tracking a bird from from one point to another. I don't know, without defining these terms, we would be uh we would kind of be skipping over a lot. So I don't want to get too far off the rails here, but you made some comments to me about like how you are now looking at your Munsty Lucy as a tracking dog and kind of leaning into the fact that she is a tracker. So I don't know, run with that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, it, first off, anything that I say wrong here, you know, Kyle, forgive me because Kyle, Kyle, (laughs) Kyle is the guy to talk to on on this. All I'm going to do is kind of regurgitate anything I've learned or heard from, from him on this. But you know, that, that episode with Tim, Tim that you referenced, I then, I reached out to Kyle and, and to your point, he, he spends so much time in, in the woods every single year and he is so critical of his own dogs. I'm like, all right, if he can be honest with yeah. himself about his own dogs, he can be honest to us about how we develop these other grouse dogs. And to your point, he, he, he defines dogs as either true dogs or what I call as first scent dogs and yeah. tracking dogs. And so the true dog, he talks about when they, when they first hit scent, they're locking up and they're standing there. And if the bird is running or relocates, that dog is staying there. It's not moving. The tracking dog will pick up scent, maybe even show a point, but then initially start to work out that hot track to where he's closing that gap between you and the bird, right? And it's interesting because once I did these episodes with Kyle and and really – to fully understand what we're talking about, you need, you need to go listen to them. I'm not saying that just to listen to the podcast, but listen to Kyle, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Listen to his experience because I believe the way he put it is all tracking dogs can be, can be true dogs. Not all true dogs can be right. tracking dogs because what's going to happen right. is that tracking dog with enough reps and proper consistency and discipline and training, that tracking dog is the, then going to work out that track with you as a team, you're going through closing that gap between you and the bird. And then when he gets into fresh scent in that scent cone, that scent pool, it's going to lock up. And that's where he talks about it can be a true dog because when he's in the strong enough and fresh enough scent, that dog's going to lock up. Yeah, it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. And so going back to my dog, Lucy, you know, there's 
Munsties are known for a lot of, a lot of things. You know, they're they're small Munsterlanders. They're a great breed. I, I, I love them. There's a reason why, you know, I, I got one. I fell in love with them the first time I saw them do uh, some tracks at a NAB, a NAB event, right? So I got her, and she was your typical Munstie, kind of a slow-to-develop point, but you know that going in. You know, don't, you know, it's not a short hair. They're not coming out of the box pointing, so you're going to wait around. And so then her point starts to show up. But then I started noticing something that I, I personally never dealt with, she was track. She would point and then track. And down here, me and Bill and all these other guys, we got into calling it, you know, point track, point track, point track. We just think that the dog is working it out. And I remember for for multiple trips, I'm talking about the development of Lucy, and I'm like, you know, she's just working too much with her nose to the ground. And I I contributed at that to her busting birds. Well, what what it really turns out to be is. The definition that Kyle uses for a tracking dog, that's what she is, is if that scent is not strong enough for her to lock up, she's going to keep getting in, you know, trying to get closer. And the problem was, is number one, first and foremost, whenever you have a problem with your dog and it's not acting right, don't look at the dog, look at yourself first. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm trying to handle my dog as if she was my short hair. I, I trained her like she was a short hair. I was handling her on hunts like she was a short hair. And bottom bottom line is she wasn't a short hair. And she was also a tracking dog, whereas Rachel, my short hair, is a true dog. And, you know, once Rachel hits scent, she's not moving. She's staunch. She's trembling. She's your, your picturesque point. Everything that people think of in a pointing dog, that's what Rachel is. Lucy, however... She will lock up if she's close. Like we've all seen it, you know, some buddies of mine on wild birds, she locks up as if it, if she, as if she's a setter or a short hair. But she has to be within some strong fresh scent for that to happen. If it's a running yeah. bird or old scent, it's kind of a loosey-goosey little just kind of swaying back and forth and then she starts working out that track. Well, before I used to woe her I would woo her, and then I would walk ahead, and then there's no bird because the bird's running, right? Well, after talking to Kyle and kind of getting a better rundown, and and it started, to your point, after hunting and talking with Tim at at length on on flushing and your dog always having to stand there for the bird and everything, I got curious, talked to Kyle, and Kyle then broke it down to where it's kind of like an aha moment to where I'm fighting the natural instinct and genetics of this dog. Back in the day, the tracking dogs used to be a common thing. Well, since then, we've kind of bred that out from, you know, either that's not people's preference, right? They want their dog yeah. to lock up or these hunting tests and these trials what do they all do they all value the do- the dog that locks up at first scent and holds it yep. and does not move you're you actually get, it's discouraged and you can actually get docked for a dog tracking that that point and so the all the all the measuring tools that we've used as as dog people to breed certain qualities in and out it's kind of like this tracking dog deal it's kind of gotten lost in the shuffle almost and Kyle does a very good job of breaking it down to where he he even says that he's after tracking dogs. He is trying to breed tracking dogs. Right. And after talking to him, we went out and we hunted here in Middle Tennessee to where there's not a lot of birds. 
Well, Lucy did that typical point, that little flash point, and then she started tracking off to the right. We were wanting to go left. You know, it, we, we, weren't, we weren't wanting to go right. We thought as hunters we knew where we wanted to go. All the other dogs went left. Lucy goes right. And before talking to Kyle just weeks earlier, I would have caught her off of that. I would have said, let's go. But after I'm literally watching her do this track sequence that, that Kyle specifically defined in the episodes. And I watched her track all the way up a hill. And then guess what? There's two grouse at the end of that track. And, and it's just like, it was just eye opening to where back to the handler, you should always look at what you're doing as a handler first, before you blame the dog, in my opinion, and all these this time I've been trying to get her to be a true dog and she's just not that true dog. And so bottom line yeah. is I need to adjust how I'm going about training this dog and interacting with this dog with, uh, on hunts and play to her strengths because it is a strength. But you just have to notice it in your dogs. And it's it's just one of those things I fell in the trap like everybody else does. You read and you listen and you hear everything from all these hunt tests and trials about true dogs. That's what you want. And so you, you try and treat your tracking dogs that way. And Nick, I tell you, it's since we've been doing this podcast for two plus years, I don't think I've ever had an episode to where I've gotten more write-ins and comments from people talking about, you describe my dog. Like, I thought my dog was broken. I thought that I just had to wait till my next dog to fix it. And then you're, you know, that it it has nothing to do with me. It's the information that Kyle shared with everybody. That's, that's what's allowing people to realize that, you know, maybe your dog, it's, it can't be trained like all the other dogs. It's not cookie yeah. cutter. You know, all these methods swear up and down. You can train every single dog. Well, every dog is different. So that's what, that's where I'm at is it's just like, it, it really kind of took me a step back and I realized what, you know, just as soon as you start getting comfortable and you start feeling like you think, you know what you're doing, some, somebody like Kyle comes along and throws a monkey wrench into it. And you're like, you know what? I'm just as green as I was eight years ago hunting in, you know, camo jeans and stuff like that. Like it's just, it's just <laughs> extremely humbling, but that's why I do this. And that's why I love it. It's just to continuously learn and milk this, milk the knowledge from the more experienced people. Yeah. It's cool. You got so much feedback oh, and maybe, maybe like almost a little bit scary, you know, that all these people you know, <laughs> well, didn't have. I have been telling some listeners, I'm like, look, I, I haven't seen your dog. I don't know. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it, it, it is kind of a little alerting or, or concerning when so many people claim that they have tracking dogs and Kyle's over here talking <laughs> about how few tracking dogs there really are. Uh, so, you know, it could be a, a, a an aspect of people are just automatically assuming some issues on their steadiness or, or something like that to them, their dogs being tracking. I can't, I can't attest to how accurate it is. I can't see everybody's dogs, but all I know is every, you know, I've had numerous listeners reach out and be like, just by listening to that episode, I finally killed my first uh, quail out of a covey. And it's all because I let my dog play out uh, a running track sequence and stuff like that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it was, it's a, it's been amazing to hear these success stories from some of the listeners that something that what Kyle has to say. And I mean, there's been some people that that have also written in and and made comments about like, there shouldn't be tracking dogs 
in the, sure. in the pointing deal. I get that. I mean, that's what all these organizations preach and try and grow. But, uh, yeah. you know, it is, you have to ask yourself, like, are you, are you fighting your dog's natural instincts or are you playing to their strengths? Right. Yeah. It's fresh perspective. It's a different way to look at things, which I think is good in a lot of ways, right? Like regardless of your situation or your dog or whatever, I don't know. I just like enjoy somebody coming at it from a different angle. I, you, I feel like I gain a little insight in, in like some of the things that he's describing, even though they're not you know, directly applying to my dogs, but he sees so much dog work on grouse and stuff. Like he's describing things that happen and I kind of relate that to what I see in my dogs. And I don't know, it just gives you a better understanding, but it's reading your dog. I mean, Kyle talks about like the information that he gets from his dog with like the pointing that they're doing and like, are they real, you know, his dogs are kind of known, like they'll have really low to the ground points or they'll be curled up and twisted. And and some people don't like that no big deal but kyle's like i appreciate that you know it's all information coming in and he's he's taking that in so i just i don't know i appreciate that side of things but i do think it is very interesting i guess the other thing i take away is he's big on cautious Mm -hmm. relocating or tracking whatever whatever word you want to call it and i i do feel like i've seen the more cautious a dog i mean there's a there's a limit to it but a confident cautious dog I feel like like that's what I've got developing in rows, and to me, it seems to be kind of a deadly combination because her ability to stick with a bird, she's cautious in that she's not so hard on these relocates that she's going to bump many birds. It it leads to shot opportunities, and so I just kind of look at that, and it's like again, like we talked about breeders and picking, like you can't just go say, "Oh, I want a dog that does <laughs> yeah. that," you know. So what we have to do, and this is kind of like the point you're making. I mean, you have to look in the mirror, look at yourself, look at your understanding of your dogs, what they should be doing, what they are doing, and yeah, it could help you understand your dog and ultimately develop a better working relationship. I mean, that's the ultimate yeah, takeaway. No, absolutely, and so. You know, I, I can't help this, but, you know, while you're talking, naturally me doing my own podcast, I got like three or four questions. I got I got to ask, you know, you mentioned specifically Rose. That's that's what you're developing with Rose. But you didn't mention Hartley. Do you think that that's because that's just comes natu- more natural to to Rose? Or do you think from your knowledge and your learning curve for, through Hartley that you're able to kind of bring out her natural instincts better when you got Rose on your second dog? That's a super good question. I know for a fact that there are things I did with Rose's development that allowed her to be different than Hartley in some ways. I don't really think this is one of those cases because I think Hartley is like, what Kyle would call a true dog, like almost a hundred percent. Like when he goes on point, I, I actually sort of developed this in my own mind. I would call Hartley the term that I would use in my head. I'd call him a home run hitter. Like <laughs> he was, he would slam on point and either that bird was going to be there right under his nose, or it would be unproductive and is a, you know, strikeout, whatever. Right. So like, that's how I saw it. And then when it comes to relocating, Hartley's more, when he goes to relocate, it's like he's 
and I think other people understand this because I've had these conversations before. It's like he's just right back to hunting again. Yeah. Like he's not following up on an individual bird. He's just kind of back to casting. And sometimes he finds it. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he bumps it. And I feel like it's it's that fast relocating. Yes. I see the polar opposite in Rose. When she goes on point and my dog's self-release. I don't walk up and tap him on the head or anything. I just kind of like allow them to self-release. Yeah. And so – that's kind of one of those gray areas as it relates to this because it's I'm not asking my true dog to stay so. Although with Hartley, <laughs> I, I kind of think like I kind of think with Hartley, like I almost could take his ability to self relocate away, and that might not be a bad thing. Yeah. But not to get too far in the weeds on that, when Rose goes to relocate, it's like she's stalking. She's got she's got a purpose, and it seems like she's almost following a track to stick with that bird. And I, I mean, she's, you know, she'll, she'll point two or three times and it will lead to a bird where like with Hartley, I would have given up. I yeah. mean, it's just like, I've seen her produce birds where I did not think a bird was going to be produced. You, you can almost see it in their eyes it, to yeah. when they go on point. So like Rachel, she's your, she's, she's Kyle's definition of true dog. I mean, it's just it's yep. like, she's slamming that point. And like what you described, if you release her, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, I've been, I've been trying to work easy and, and all that stuff, yep. but you release yep. her. It's just kind of like, She's like, okay, I thought I smelled something. Guess not. And she's off to the next one trying to trying to <laughs> yep. find another grouse. But with Lucy, when she locks up and I go to flush and nothing gets up, she looks me in the eyes and almost like, I swear to God, there was something there. Like, it, I, I'm <laughs> not making this up. It is somewhere here. And you release her. That nose is to the ground. That, that tail is going – thousand miles an hour and she is literally just crisscrossing this track all the way until the end and then you know we've gotten to the end and i I can think of a specific scenario to where in minnesota a, a few years ago she went on point i swear she thought that a bird was getting up under her nose when it did not happen she tracked and we went it had to be 100 yards and next thing you know she just tracking, 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 and then a bird gets up. And you could just see, just like, oh, I bumped that. And, you know, I'm not shooting a bump bird. And yep. next thing you know, I see her just out of nowhere lock up. And there were two more birds in that area. So she was tracking mm-hmm. at least one to where they met up with two other birds. Right. Like, you know, or right. she could have been tra- tracking multiple birds. I have no idea. But the fact is, is like, she worked that to where if I had Rachel on the ground, I never would have even seen those birds. And I watch her work that, and I'm I'm just sitting there. I'm along for the ride. At this time, I have no idea who Kyle Warren is. I have no idea what this true dog versus tracking dog mess <laughs> is. I'm just like, what is my dog doing? And she worked it out to where I got shot opportunities on two birds just because she stuck with it. And to your point, like Hartley and Rachel – they probably just would have, you know, started doing their normal casts and hunting methods. Yep. It'd be interesting to like bounce some of the stuff off. Kyle. And I've talked to Kyle, you know, off the podcast too. And, you know, I know he could, uh, he could definitely entertain some of these ideas for, you know, a long time. He loves to talk about dogs. That's for sure. Yeah. Another example, I was, I was talking to my buddy this morning and talked about how like the one time that I can really recall seeing Hartley point 
and then kind of have that stealthy, cautious relocate was out in North Dakota on the prairie. And I really feel like in that scenario, I think he had, because of the way the breeze and the wind works out there, I think he had that bird scent the entire time. And he really was just kind of like staying in the scent cone mm-hmm. and just moving up, moving up towards it and pointing. But um, I don't know. I can think of a, I can think of a video that I've got of Hartley when he was nine months old that he kind of went on point and then I actually got him on video, like relocating and sort of drawn into this woodcock and he pointed and, you know, is there, would there have been a way to develop? I, I, I really don't know. It'd be an interesting question, but yeah. I, I, there's some differences between Hartley and Rose that I've seen for sure. Yep. I, I wish that I was fortunate enough to be able to have enough bird contacts to really kind of distinguish the difference uh, and into what Kyle's talking about and true dogs versus tracking dogs. The, the honest truth is I'll, I'll never have enough contacts and yeah. personal experience, at least while I live down here to, to really not only like the fact that he's been able to distinguish the difference between those two types of dogs over the years is what right. fascinates me. It's like, okay, you have somebody that's really paying attention to your dog. And this is something that I preach on our podcast all the time. Know your dog Trust the hunter with the longest nose. We always want to interject ourselves and kind of feel like we have our control over the hunt, right? But these dogs, they have the nose for a reason. You know, if you have that cooperation and that trust built up, you should be able to trust that dog out there. But, you know, going back to what you just talked about on the prairie, I went to the prairie this year too. I hunted South Dakota and I got in some prairie chickens and, and sharp tails as well. And one thing I did notice is Rachel smoked Lucy out there being a true dog. Really? And so Lucy, I honestly can, I can trust her more on grouse than I can Rachel. And it may be that, you know, maybe the rough grouse is more of a running dog, but then you put her on even something like Woodcock that usually, you know, they're not really known for running. Then I don't know, go out to the prairie. I don't know if they were running a lot. You know, I don't have that much experience with sharp tail or prairie chickens, but all I know is Rachel was sticking them left and right. Like she was our anchor on that trip. Boom, boom, boom. And Lucy struggled a little bit because she was trying to do her little track thing, a little track point, track point. And she busted a lot of birds, but by the end of the week, we were able to start putting some birds over her as well. Um, and it's just, it's just really interesting. I wish that I lived in an area to where, you know, I lived out in the Dakotas and I could really kind of put this stuff to practice more consistently or up in, up in the Great Lakes or something like that. But for now, you know, I just have to kind of start, I just got to keep doing it in little small windows and, and keep talking to the people that really know this stuff. Yeah. Do you ever think how cool it would be if you could just ask your dog, what exactly did you smell there? <laughs> <laughs> I've always said I'd be curious. I wish I could have a dog's nose for just one day. Like I don't want it more oh, than one man. day. I think it would drive me nuts. But just to be able to like put yourself in their brain and see how they interact with scent, and then you have a fully like completely different understanding of how the dog's noses work. Because I mean, anybody has owned these dogs for longer than than a week. It's like they've seen their dogs do some crazy stuff to where is you could swear that you know how did the dog smell that? How did the dog know how to do that? It's it, it's just it gets me every time, man. Every time you see that dog just out of nowhere just slam a point on something that you swear there was never a bird there, it just it, yeah. it just does something to me. Yep, never cease to amaze you, and and uh, it 
comes with its own frustration, but that usually has <laughs> yeah. that usually has to do with what we've got going in in between our ears. You yes. know, that's that's where the frustration comes yeah. from for the most part. Mm-hmm. What's next uh, for the Gun Dog at Yourself podcast, man? Twenty twenty two. We're at the start. I mean, you got big plans, or so, man. It's honestly, it, it's about to be training season. You know, I, I kind of try yeah. to break it up between hunting season and training season. We've been kind of heavy on the on the hunting topics here lately, and so I'm looking forward to kind of getting into some training specific heavy topics. And uh, man, it's I still have a month left of hunting here, so uh, yeah, it, I'm headed to Alabama this weekend. I'm going to go chase some quail and uh, some woodcock with some buddies down there, and then oh, that sounds like fun. I'm going to go try and knock out my first UFTA trial next weekend, just for something else to try and and, and go learn and do and make a fool of myself. And then what uh, is UFTA? That is, uh, I think it's United Field Trial Association. So it's okay. it's a shoot to retrieve trial circuit. Oh, okay. So it's very okay. similar to NASTRA. A uh, few di- right. few differences, but yeah, it's it's just a shoot to retrieve trial, and and it's just something you know something else to do. Why not? Yeah, I'm sure the dogs will have fun. Yeah, I mean, you know, and that's no matter what, the dogs have fun. You know, it's right. right. Yeah, they, they can do the worst dog work, and you can be embarrassed, you can be frustrated, but at the end of the day, the dogs are having fun no matter what. Yeah, how's the quail hunting down there? You know, I mean, we, I talked to you the other day, and obviously, you were putting up birds. Like, you reasonably go out and expect to get into some birds. Uh, so it depends on which state you're in. Uh, each each state does their. Uh, habitat management a little different. Tennessee, I don't have hardly any uh, confidence going out quail hunting, at least on, on public land. You know, there's a couple little small WMAs that I know about that you can go get a, a, a cubby contact or two if you need to, but I honestly don't even shoot the birds out of them because they're just smaller cubbies. Uh, but you know, that if you go, if you're willing to drive three or four hours and get into another state, I know, I know of a couple places that you can get into some good, good quail numbers and, uh, really your best opportunities for wild bird contacts come from woodcock. And if the flight's in, then you can get some good contacts in. And, uh, you know, if you're a glutton for punishment and you, and you really decide that you want to get after them, you, you can still get some grouse up. But, you know, I don't know why they have a daily limit more than one, <laughs> but they do. Uh, it, we, we count flushes by the season. <laughs> we don't count flushes by the hour or even the day. It's, you know, if you have a handful yeah, yeah. of flushes by the end of the season, you you had a good season. On the woodcock, I, I can't remember if this is something you and I talked about. I know that Stephen Faust and I did, but do they kind of fluctuate throughout the season as far as like, are they, are you, you're covered up in them one day and then not so the next day? <laughs> yeah, so woodcock, man, anybody who's ever hunted a really woodcock over a, a number of seasons, they understand woodcock kind of operate by their own timeline, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, yeah. I think Tim put it best when I was hunting with him, like woodcock will be where woodcock will be. Uh, it's yeah. it, it's really that simple. You know, I, I'm fortunate to where this past year I moved out into the middle of uh, God's country here in Tennessee to where like that I have in my backyard, I can go get up Woodcock when the flight's in. And to your point, they'll be here one day to where I've gone out and I get, you know, 15 flushes within an hour. And then the next day you go out, like just Monday I went out and we covered all the ground and we didn't even get a single contact. It's just, it's just completely different. And then this winter has been, been very strange. You know, just two weeks ago, it was 70 degrees here. 
And then yeah. the past two weeks it's been below freezing every day. And so, you know, it's, I, I don't, I couldn't tell you where the woodcock are right now. Uh, but you know, they're not as thick as what they normally are this time of year right now. Yeah. You talk about below freezing. I talk about below zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you have grouse and I don't, so I'll trade you. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I guess it's worth it. It's definitely worth the punishment. I'm, I'm not too, I'm not too bad in the cold. Below zero is like kind of, that's like sort of the level where it's like, all right, we can hardly even have fun out here anymore. But, uh, you know, yeah, the, the dogs and I, we get out every day, but it's just we got to shorten the walk a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's. I think it got down to 18 here today, and and you know, most people down here are just like, oh my god, the, the world. It feels cold. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. All right, man. A couple quick ones before we wrap up here. But all right. So you got a short hair. You got a Munstie. What's next? Oh, man. So this this is probably coming out here soon on our podcast. But, you know, I guess you you got the exclusive here. uh, As it stands right now, it's looking like I'm getting my third pup uh, this spring. Uh, Bill, old-time Bill, we've talked about it at length here. He uh, he offered me one of his pups out of his litter coming up this, this spring, and I actually had the fortune to take the, uh, the sire, or the dam, actually, uh, to Minnesota with me a few years ago, and I shot her first grouse and woodcock over her point and i've hunted with the sire a number of times and uh it was just something to where he offered to me i'm like you know absolutely you know what what kind yeah. of grouse hunter would i be if i never at least try to set it right yeah super cool well congrats on that what uh so upcoming litter is it official yet he he's waiting on her to come into heat right now okay and, okay uh, gotcha. so so this line is actually out of Tacoa River. It's Jerry Barnes' line out of Georgia, which I think you probably know him from uh, the Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. You've probably had a run in with with old Jerry uh, here and there. But yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited. You know, obviously a lot of things can still go wrong. You know, maybe she doesn't come into heat. Maybe it doesn't take right. whatever. But but the plan is right now. You know, later later this year I might have a new setter pup to be fooling around with. Right on, man. All right, and then the other one I was curious about. You'd mentioned, you know, your wanderlust, and you're kind of you're going all over the place trying these. Yep. You, you went out to the prairie. I know you'd been out to North Dakota before too, but do you have another trip that you're dying to go on? So, man, I have too many of them. There's there's not <laughs> enough. To, yeah. There's not enough time. I mean, it, yeah. I would I would honestly better serve myself if I could focus into one area or even <laughs> one species. I re, I really could, but. It's kind of like I'm trying to soak up lost time and and the years that I spent in my life, the the two decades that I spent without bird dogs, it's like I'm trying to make up for it now. And this fall, I don't have an upland trip. I had some buddies that they finally talked me into taking my first uh, big game trip. So I'm I'm headed headed to Newfoundland to do a uh, moose and black bear hunt in end of September, early October. And then, but it's funny, you know, I think I've probably talked to the same friends more so about what upland hunting trip I'm planning after that. <laughs> like, you know, I, <laughs> I have this big trip and I'm looking forward to it. Don't get me wrong. Like, yeah. it's going to be interesting yeah. to try it. 
but I'm still sitting here like, all right, when I get back, what do I want to go do? Do I want to go chase sage grouse in Montana? Do I want to go check out Wyoming or Oregon? Or, you know, eventually it, it is, it's going to happen within the next year or two. I'm going to go chase this, the Western quail species. Uh, yeah. it's, it's just got to happen. And, uh, so I mean, honestly, it's just keep your ears peeled because there's no there's no telling where I'll end up. It's just it's just a matter of balancing out the vacation time at work. Love it. Well, the listeners and I can follow along on the Gun Dog It Yourself podcast, which is available anywhere, pretty much anywhere you can find this podcast. Yep. So we'll trust people know how to do that. You have a website <laughs> and everything. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Just gundogityourself.com. Pretty straightforward. Right on. Well, Nick, I appreciate you joining me for an episode on the Birdshot Podcast. I said it before, but I'll say it again. If folks enjoy this show, I am confident you will find enjoyment in the Gun Dog It Yourself podcast. Go over there and check it out, especially if you're one of those folks that talk to me about, uh, you know, if you got your first bird dog or you're new, you're going to find some episodes over there that are going to be very helpful. But Nick, always appreciate it. Glad we connected for this and we'll keep in touch, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, and we'll we'll definitely talk soon. All right. See you later. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Quick reminder, we are presented by Onyx Hunt, Upland Institute, Yukonuba Sporty Dog, and Upland Gun Company. Rate, review, subscribe, like, and share. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.